Chapter 3 The Most Wonderful Sentence Ever Written For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John chapter 3 verse 16 My text is the most wonderful sentence that was ever written. Of course, that sentence is in the Bible. All the greatest sentences that were ever written are found in one book, God's Word, the Bible. The Bible is a book that abounds in illuminating, stirring, startling, marvelous, bewildering, amazing, and life-transforming utterances. Utterances with which there is absolutely nothing to compare in all the other literature of the world. But I am inclined to think that the one we are to consider here is the most remarkable of them all. I think that after we have given it careful thought, you will agree with me that this sentence is the most wonderful that was ever written. You are most likely familiar with it. I doubt if there is a person in this audience who has not heard it again and again. Indeed, our very familiarity with it has blinded many of us to its wonderful character and stupendous significance. But we are going to look at it steadily and closely, turning it around and around as one would turn around and scrutinize a diamond of unusual purity, beauty, brilliance, and play of prismatic colors until its beauty, its wisdom, its glory, its sublimity, and its amazing significance are more fully seen and appreciated by us. The sentence is found in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There are whole volumes of incomparably precious truth packed into that one sentence. Indeed, many volumes have been devoted to the exposition of that one verse but it is not exhausted yet, and never will be. These marvelous words of God never become hackneyed, worn out, or wearisome. We are always beholding new beauty and new glory in them. When all the millions of volumes that men have written in many languages throughout the many centuries of literary history have become obsolete and forgotten, that imperishable sentence shall shine out in its matchless beauty and unequaled glory throughout the endless ages of eternity. Let me repeat it. Scripture For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God Himself has used that statement to save thousands of souls, to lift men out of the sad, appalling ruin which sin had worked in the glory of likeness to Himself. I trust that he may use it now to save many more. The verse tells us five exceedingly important facts. First, God's attitude toward the world. Second, God's attitude toward sin. Third, God's attitude toward his Son. Fourth, God's attitude toward all who believe in his Son. Fifth, God's attitude toward all who refuse or neglect to believe in his Son. God's attitude toward the world. First of all, this verse from God's Word tells us what God's attitude is toward the world. What is God's attitude toward the world? Love. The sentence reads, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Love is the most wonderful thing in the world, and love is one of the most uncommon things in the world. Today, there is much that is called love, but most of that which is called love is not love at all. We often speak of a young man's love for a young woman, and all we mean is that this young man wishes to get that young woman for his own pleasure and gratification. That is not love at all. It often does not have the slightest resemblance of love. It is often utter selfishness, and not infrequently the vilest and most unbridled lust. It is not unlikely that if the young woman refuses to accept him as a husband or so-called lover, he will shoot her down or seek to blast her reputation. And that hideous thing we call love. He loved her so much that he killed her. It is as remote from love as anything possibly can be, as remote from love as hell is from heaven. It is the lowest order of selfishness and the grossest beastliness. A lawyer here in this city two weeks ago shot his former wife in the back when she was not looking because she would not return to him and endure more outrages that he had inflicted upon her for years. Was it love that prompted his amazingly, cowardly, sneaking, cruel, ruffian, devilish act? No, it was a passion that would have disgraced the lowest wild beast of the jungle. We speak of one man's love for another. What do we usually mean? Only this. The two men are friendly because in many respects they are congenial and enjoy one another's company. But if one does some little thing that offends the other, the so-called love turns into utter indifference and even into bitter hate. It was never love. It was mere self-centered fondness. All this is not love. What is love? Love is the consuming, absorbing desire for and delight in another's highest good. Real love is entirely unselfish. It utterly loses sight of self-interest and sets itself to seeking the interest of the person loved. This was God's attitude toward the world. He loved the world, really loved it. He looked down upon this world, the whole mass of men living at any time and that would live in all times to come, and he loved them all. His whole being went out in infinite yearning to benefit and bless the world. Any cost to himself would be disregarded if it would bless the world to pay the cost. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. O men and women, stand and wonder. O angels, archangel, cherubim, and seraphim, stand and wonder. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Some men tell us that they cannot believe the Bible to be the Word of God because there are so many incredible statements in it. But John chapter 3, verse 16 is the most incredible statement in the whole book, and yet we know it is true. If I can believe that statement, I shouldn't have any difficulty with any other statement in the whole book. And I can believe that statement. I do believe that statement. I know that statement is true. I have put it to the test of personal experience and found it true. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son has been God's attitude toward the world from the beginning. That is God's attitude toward the world today. God loves the world. There are men and women and children in this world whom you and I love, but God loves the whole world. There is not a man in it, 
not a woman in it, not a child in it, whom God does not love. From the intellectually most gifted and morally most saintly man and woman, down to the most morally most degraded and brute-like man or woman in the slums of a great city, or in the jungles of some cannibal island, God loves each and every one. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who gather in this church about whom you care absolutely nothing. You never saw them before, you will never see them again. If you should read in your paper tomorrow morning, John Jones, who was at the church of the open door, stepped in front of a Sixth Street car as he was going home from the service and was instantly killed, you would hardly give it a second thought. John Jones is nothing to you, but John Jones is something to God. God loves John Jones and John Smith and John Johnson and every other man and woman and child. You may be a lonely stranger in a great city's crowd. Perhaps you have been unfortunate and are penniless and friendless. Perhaps you have gone down into some black depth of sin and you say to yourself, not one person in this great crowd has the slightest interest in me. And that may be true. But there is one who has an interest in you. There is one who so loved you that he gave his only begotten son to die for you. And that one is God. God loves the world and everyone in it. God loves the world in the purest, deepest, and highest sense of that word, love. Yes, God loves you. Whom do you mean by you? Someone asks. I mean every man, woman, and child. There is nothing about the world to cause God to love it. It is a sinful world. It is a selfish world. It is a corrupt world. The more I get to know the world of which I am a part, and the more I get to know myself, the more I am humbled. John was entirely right when he said, The whole world lieth in the evil one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 I am an optimist, but I am not an optimist by painting a black world white. Look at the rich world. What a cruel thing it is. How it marches on to greater wealth trampling down everyone that lies in its path. How are great fortunes usually built up? You know, I know, by the trampling of human hearts underfoot. But look at the poor world. It is nearly as cruel as the rich world. One day in Chicago, two men were working hard to make an honest living for themselves and their families, just four doors north of the church where I was pastor. Four other poor men sneaked in and chopped their heads open with hatchets and ran. Why did they do it? Simply because they wanted the jobs of these two men. The two men struck down by the four heartless cowards were guilty of no crime and no wrong against the ones that cut them down. They did not belong to the Union. That was all. If you wish to know the spirit of the rich world, look at some of the greedy, conscienceless trusts. If you wish to know the spirit of the poor world, look at the present-day methods of the trade unions. The spirit of both is essentially the same. Greed for gold. Money must be secured at any cost, even of the murder of others by the slow process of starvation on the part of the rich, 
or the rapid process of hatchet and bullet and dynamite on the part of the poor. A cruel, selfish, bloodthirsty world is this. What the world really is, we saw in the late war. But God loves the world in such a way that He was willing to send His Son to die for us. God loves those four cowards who cut down their fellow laboring men enough to send His Son to die for them. God loves those millionaires who already have more than is needed for their own good or for the good of their families, but are trying to increase their wealth by crowding competitors out and pushing their families to the poorhouse enough to send His Son to die for them. God loves those moral monsters that made Europe flow with blood and gasp with poison gas, enough to send His Son to die for them. As I come to know more and more of the cruelty, greed, selfishness, falsehood, wickedness, lust, vileness, and beastliness there is in this world, in the social world high and low, in the business world, in all its departments, and in the political world, I sometimes almost wonder why God does not blot out this whole world as He did Sodom and Gomorrah of old. Why doesn't He do it? I will tell you why. God extends love to the world. In spite of all its cruelty, in spite of all its greed, in spite of all its selfishness, in spite of all its lust, in spite of all its vileness in thought and word and deed, God has love for the world. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it amazing that a holy God would extend love to a sinful world like this? But He does. There is not a man whom God does not offer His love. There is not a woman whom God does not offer His love. There is not a thief whom God does not offer His love. There is not a woman who has forgotten her modesty and her true womanhood whom God does not offer His love. There is not an adulterer whom God does not offer His love. Not a sinner, not an outcast, not a criminal of any kind whom God does not offer love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Years ago I said to a woman who was in deep despair because of the depths of iniquity and infamy into which she had fallen, God loves you. Not me, Mr. Tory. God doesn't love me. I have killed a man, she cried. Yes, I know that, but God loves you. No, not me. I have murdered innocent unborn babes. Yes, I know that, but God loves you. Not me. My heart is as hard as a rock. Yes, but God loves you. Not me. I have prayed to the devil to take away all my convictions, and he has done it. Yes, I know all that, but God loves you. Then I made that woman get down on her knees, and she came to believe in God's love for her, and she found a great peace. I saw her again last month when I was in Chicago. At the close of one of my meetings, she came down to the platform to speak to me with others who crowded around me. She said, Do you know me? I replied, Of course I know you, and called her by name. Her face was covered with smiles. Oh, she said, Mr. Tory, I am still at the old work of winning others to Christ. Ah, some self-righteous skeptics hold up their hands in holy horror and disgust and say, I don't want to believe in a God who welcomes sinners so vile as that. 
you miserable Pharisee, you old hypocrite. You are essentially as bad as she once was, and infinitely worse than she now is. But God loves you, even you. God's attitude toward the whole wide world is love. God's Attitude Towards Sin But what is God's attitude towards sin? Our text tells us that His attitude towards sin is hate. God loves the world with infinite love. God hates sin with infinite hate. How does our text show that? Listen, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How does that show that God hates sin? In this way, if God had not hated sin, He could have saved the world that He loved without an atonement. Without the atonement that cost Him so much, the death and agony of His only begotten Son, who died as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. But because God was holy and therefore hated sin, hated it with infinite hatred, His hatred of sin had to manifest itself either in the punishment of the sinner and the banishment of the sinner forever from himself and from life and hope, or in some other way. But God's love would not permit the just punishment of the sinner. So God, in the person of His Son, took the penalty of sin upon Himself and thus saved the world He loved. Scripture All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Jehovah hath made to strike on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6, exactly translated from the Hebrew. In this way God made possible eternal life for every sinner who would accept the salvation that he purchased for them by the atoning death of his only begotten Son. The cross of Christ declares two things. First, God's infinite love of the world. Second, God's infinite hatred of sin. O wicked man, do not assume that because God loves you, He will wink at your sin. Not for one moment. He hates your sin. He hates your greed. He hates your selfishness. He hates your cruelty. He hates your dishonesty. He hates your lying. He hates your drunkenness. He hates your impure imagination. He hates your moral uncleanness. He hates your beastliness. He hates every sin, great and small, of which you are guilty. The hatred of a true man for all falsehood, the hatred of honest men for all dishonesty, and the hatred of a true, pure woman for the unspeakable vileness of the woman of the street and gutter is nothing compared to the blazing wrath of God at your smallest sin. God's Attitude Toward His Son This wonderful verse also tells of God's attitude toward His Son. What is God's attitude toward His Son? Listen, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God's attitude toward His Son, His only begotten Son, is infinite love. The Lord Jesus is the only Son of God. We become sons of God through our faith in Him, but He is the only Son of God by eternal and inherent right. He was the object of His Father's infinite love in the measureless ages before any one of the worlds was created. Yes, 
before there was an angel or an archangel or any of the heavenly beings. Let me speak to you fathers. What is your attitude toward your son? How you love him. And if you have only one son, how intensely you love him. I have but one son. I have longed for more, but God in his wisdom has seen fit to give us but one son. How I love him. God only knows how I love him. But my love for my one son is nothing, nothing at all compared to God's love for his only begotten son. I sometimes think of my boy and think I know something of God's love for Jesus Christ, but it is only a little, a very little that I know. But though God thus loved his son, God gave that son whom he so infinitely loved, that son who through all eternity had been the object of his delight, God gave that only begotten son for the world, for you and for me. He gave him to leave heaven and his own companionship, to come down to earth to live as a lonely stranger here. He gave him to be spit upon, buffeted, and despised and rejected of men. He gave him to be crowned with thorns, mocked and derided. He gave him to be dragged through the streets before a howling, yelling, jeering mob. He gave him to be nailed to the cross, yes, to a cross, and to hang there in misery, pain, and agony for hours, the object of the rude jests and jeers of the merciless mob. He gave him to die of a broken heart, a heart broken by the reproach of the men he loved, Psalm 69, verse 20, and by grief over man's sins, which he had taken upon himself. Yes, God gave him, his only begotten Son, thus to be separated from himself, to suffer and to die. Why? Because God loved you and me, and that was the only price that would purchase our salvation. And God paid that price, that awful price. Oh, it is wonderful. I can think of but one other thing that is anywhere near as astounding as the love of God for sinners. What is that? The way we treat that love. The way men treat it. The way some of you despise it. The way you reject it. The way you trample it underfoot. The way you even try to doubt it, disbelieve it, deny it, discredit it, and try to make yourself think that you have intellectual difficulties about the doctrine of the atonement. At least be honest. Your real difficulty is not intellectual. You want to save your pride and excuse the enormity of your ingratitude. And to do that, you do not hesitate at the gross sin of even denying the Lord that bought you, bought you by His atoning agony and death. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 Oh, be honest with the wondrous love of God, even if you are determined to spurn it. Your pretended theological difficulties with the atonement that Jesus Christ made upon the cross are simply your dishonest attempts to excuse your abominable ingratitude and damnable rejection of infinite love. Bear with me for talking so plainly about your sin. I do it in love for you. You may not be willing to admit that today, but you will have to admit it in that day when you stand in the light of the great white throne where all lies and pretexts and deceptions and hypocrisies will be burned up. God's Attitude Toward Believers in Christ Let us look at another thing. 
what our sentence teaches about God's attitude toward believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is God's attitude toward all who believe in Jesus Christ? It can be put in a few words. God's attitude toward all believers in Jesus Christ is to give them eternal life. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The death of Jesus Christ has opened for all who believe in Him a way of pardon, and made it possible for a holy God to forgive sin and to give eternal life to the vilest sinner if only he will believe on Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, and these wages must be paid. But Jesus Christ paid the price, so life and not death is possible for you and me. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. Whosoever believes on Jesus Christ, whom God gave to die for him, can have eternal life. Yes, he does have eternal life. Anyone can have eternal life. There is but one condition. Just believe on Jesus Christ. You ought to do it anyhow, even if there were nothing to be gained by your believing on him. You owe it to Jesus Christ to believe on him. He is infinitely worthy of your faith. But there is something to be gained by believing on Him, something of infinite worth, eternal life. Do you desire eternal life? You can have it. Anyone can have it, no matter what his past may have been. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, if I offered you great honor, it would be nothing compared with this. If I offered you enormous wealth, it would be nothing compared with this. If I offered you exemption from all sickness and pain, it would be nothing compared with this. Eternal life, that is what God offers, and God offers it to each one of you. Oh, and how it makes the heart swell and throb with hope and joy and rapture, eternal life. God's Attitude Toward Those Who Will Not Believe in Jesus Christ There is just one thing left to mention, and that is God's attitude toward all those who will not believe on Jesus Christ. What is it? Listen. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's attitude toward those who will not believe on Jesus Christ, those who prefer sin and vanity and pride to the glorious Son of God, is simply this. God, with great grief and reluctance, withdraws from them the infinite gift He has purchased at so great a cost and which they will not accept. God leaves them to perish. There is no hope for any man who rejects God's gift of eternal life, obtained by simply believing in His only begotten Son. God has exhausted all the possibilities of a saving love and power in Jesus Christ's atonement on the cross of Calvary. Reject Him, neglect to accept Him, and you must eternally perish. God's attitude toward the world is infinite love. God's attitude toward sin is infinite hatred. God's attitude toward His Son is unutterable love but He gave that Son up to die for you and me. 
God's attitude toward the believer is to give him eternal life regardless of what his past has been. God's attitude toward those who will not believe is to leave them to the hell they so madly choose. Men and women, what will you choose today? Life or death? Some of you will decide that question in a few minutes. Decide it for all eternity. God help you to decide it right. One night, years ago in Minneapolis, I knelt in prayer beside a young woman who was having an awful struggle. A fearful battle was going on in her soul between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. She heard God calling her to accept His love and to accept the eternal life that His love had purchased by the atoning death of His own Son. But she heard other voices, too. Voices of the world and the voice of Satan himself luring her to turn her back on Jesus Christ and choose the world. It was awful to watch the battle, and my heart ached as I watched, and I kept crying to God that the Holy Spirit might gain the victory. Now and then I spoke to her. Finally, I took out my watch and said, This battle cannot last much longer. Continue to resist the Holy Spirit, as you are resisting Him now, and you will seal your doom. I believe if you do not yield to God in the next ten minutes, you will never yield, but will be lost forever. Then I prayed, but said nothing more to her, but now and again looked at my watch. The fight went on. Which way would she decide? Before the ten minutes were up, she yielded to God. There is a similar battle going on in the hearts of some who are listening to these words. Some of you have been brought to realize the wondrous love of God for you as you have never realized it before. Some of you have been brought to see that eternal life is possible for you today if you will only choose Christ. But the power of the world and of sin and of Satan is strong upon you. The world, sin, and above all, Satan will not let you go without making a mighty effort to keep you in his power to blind you and forever destroy your soul. Men and women who do not know Christ, each and every one of you, look, look, look. Look once more at the cross of Christ. See Him hanging there in awful agony, paying the penalty for your sin. And as you look, listen once more to the precious words of the most wonderful sentence that was ever written. God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What will you do with that love today? Will you yield to it, believe in the Savior, and obtain eternal life? Or will you trample that wondrous love of God underfoot and say again, as you have often said, I will not accept Christ, and go out to perish, perish eternally? One night many years ago, I was preaching the first sermon I ever preached in the city of Chicago. It was some years before I went there to live. I was at the first international convention of Christian workers. The morning the convention opened, I entered a little late, and the nominating committee was just bringing in its report. And to my amazement, I heard them announce my name as nominated for chairman of the convention and president of the International Christian Workers Association. I was not yet thirty years old, and there were many workers there who knew far more about aggressive methods of Christian work than I had ever learned. However, 
There was nothing to do but to accept the position, and during the days of that wonderful convention, I occupied the chairman's seat. The convention was held in the old First Methodist Church in the heart of the city at the corner of Washington and Clark Street. When Sunday came, of course, the church held its own services, but I was invited to preach at the evening service. There had been much prayer, and the Spirit of God was present in great power. When I gave out the invitation, many rose to say that they would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and then came down to the altar. Among those who had risen, I noticed a beautifully dressed lady near the front, an intelligent-looking woman. But I noticed also that she did not come to the altar with the others. While the altar service was in progress, I stepped down and urged her to come to the front, but she refused. On Monday night, at the regular session of the convention, I saw her come in and take a seat just a few rows from the back of the building. When the meeting was drawing to a close, I called Mayor Howland of Toronto, who was vice president of the convention, to the chair and slipped down to the back of the church in order to speak with this lady before she got out of the building. The moment the benediction was pronounced, I hurried to her side and asked if she would remain for a few moments. As the others passed by, she sat down and I took a seat beside her and urged her to an immediate and wholehearted acceptance of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you my story, she replied. I have attended a Sunday school in this city ever since I was a little girl. I scarcely missed a Sunday. She told me which Sunday school it was, one of the aristocratic Sunday schools on the north side. But, she continued, though I have been going to Sunday school all these years, do you know that you are the first person in all my life that ever spoke to me personally about my accepting Christ? Then she went on to tell me the story of her life. She was unusually well-educated, occupying a high position of responsibility, but the story that she told me of her career was so shameless that I was amazed that a woman of sense, to say nothing of character, would dream of telling such a story to a man. Then she hurried on and told me how she had spent the preceding Easter Sunday. It was a story I could not repeat. Having finished, she said with a mocking laugh, Funny way to spend Easter, wasn't it? I was astounded and shocked. I did not attempt to say anything in reply. I did not wish to. I simply opened my Bible to John chapter 3, verse 16, handed it to her, and asked her to read it. It was a small Bible, and she had to hold it close to her face to see the words. She began to read with a smile on her lips. For God so loved the world. The smile vanished. She read on. That he gave his only begotten son. She choked and broke down. The tears literally poured from her eyes on the page of the Bible and on the beautiful silk robe she wore. The love of God had conquered that sinful, hardened, trifling, seemingly shameless heart. Oh, friend, I wish that his love might break your heart, break down your hardness, unbelief, worldliness, and resistance to God and his love. See the Lord Jesus hanging on yonder cross in unutterable agony and an indescribable pain, his heart breaking for you, breaking for your sins. Hear again this most wonderful sentence that was ever written. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life.